everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, and we're sitting here with party hats on because this is our one-year anniversary of starting this podcast. Uh, we don't actually have party hats on, but it's uh, the spirit of celebration today. It's crazy to think that we started this a year ago, September 10th, actually, to be uh, specific. And just grateful, again, grateful for your participation, getting weekly emails and just feedback from people who are listening and asking questions and suggesting content. So, so appreciate this process. It's been helpful for Drew and I to clarify our thoughts on these issues and look forward to uh, another year. And today we're going to start a two-part series on the baptism of the Spirit. If you are in a charismatic church setting, uh, come out of a Pentecostal background, this topic, baptism of the Spirit, might be a more familiar one. But I know even in my role here at the church in Waco, as the director of the training school, that we have people you know, who come into the school every year from a variety of backgrounds. And my assumption is that with the diversity of our listenership in this podcast, that we're going to have every spectrum and posture towards the baptism of the Spirit. It can be very familiar for some, but I think for most it's very confusing, and especially in today's landscape, depending upon, again, church background and upbringing and what we're exposed to day to day and week to week in our social environment, that there are a lot of viewpoints, a lot of questions, again, especially in the discipleship school and exposed to those questions, a lot of the same ones year after year, but this is such a, a deep and complex topic that we, we thought it merited a couple of episodes to flesh this out because the, the ministry of the Spirit in the body is such, such a key, not just doctrine, but reality for the church. And so we want to do it justice here, at least in a, in a couple of episodes. So Drew, why don't you get us kicked off? Where are we going to explore the baptism of the Spirit as a biblical concept? Let me start. If anyone out there, you know, you really enjoy reading and diving into theology, this is a fascinating riddle. Depending on which tradition you grow up in, a lot of times you don't question it until you start rubbing shoulders with people who come from a different tradition. So if somebody is in the Catholic world, you know, you, there's one way of formulating it. If you're in the Pentecostal world, there's a different. If you're in the standard evangelical, there's yet another way of doing it. But then you start running into other church traditions and you realize the complexity of it. And it really is fascinating, fascinating to dive into both the biblical side of it as well as the theological side of it. So before we get into some of that, let me start by framing this in a way that I think is really important to kick it off, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a significant biblical metaphor. The reason I say that is I think it could be easy to sideline this concept because it's confusing and to sideline it and or maybe even accuse that the Pentecostal world of proof texting, finding, you know, a phrase in scripture, and they try to build a whole theology around it, um, which certainly happens in a lot of places. But you can't do that with the baptism of the Spirit. And the reason I say that is it is mentioned in all four Gospels, John the Baptist prophesies over Jesus that he's going to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Two of the Gospels adds, and also in fire. 
But it's mentioned in all four Gospels, and then it's reinforced twice in the book of Acts, once in the beginning and then a second time related to the Cornelius episode and Gentile inclusion in the church. There are very few things that are attributed in all four Gospels. I mean, we're talking like the resurrection. We're talking, you know, it's if you actually make a, make a chart of, of the things that are included in all four of the Gospels, this is one of the few. And then if you were to add uh, what's then further developed in the, in the book of Acts, you know, that list gets even smaller. This is a significant thing. I mean, it, the fact that all four gospel writers would see fit to highlight this alone should tell us that this is important. Um, but second, if you actually analyze the context of, what it, of what's being said, it takes on even further significant because it's used to describe the fundamental nature of Jesus's ministry. And so John is baptizing with water for repentance, but Jesus, who is altogether greater, is coming to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. And so we're talking about the purpose of Jesus. We're talking about something attributed in all four Gospels and twice in Acts. It's hard to get more significant than that. And so that's what makes this such an intriguing theological riddle, is you have something that is clearly a very important concept in Scripture, but that is also varied and confusing in how it's developed doctrinally within the various traditions of the church. And it makes it an intriguing concept to tackle. That's a great intro. And you talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit being a confusing doctrine, or, or at least in the way that it's been developed among various traditions. And I think we could explore it in a lot of different lights. You know, is the baptism of the Spirit, is that an actual experience, kind of an ontological experience with the Holy Spirit? Or is that more, not metaphorical, but kind of in an ethereal sense that we have the deposit of the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation by faith? Or is it now evidenced in just Christian baptism? Is it more symbolic? I think there are good arguments to to be made for each one of these. So why don't you kind of start to tackle some of those, those different divergent points when we think of the baptism of the Spirit? So something I've noticed as I've researched this is how most groups, most Christian traditions, so the Reformed, the Standard Evangelical, you could get into Catholic, Orthodox, Wesleyan, you know, most groups that, you know, when they discuss it, they will tend to discuss it under a primary concept that they already have in place. And in other words, they, they will have central doctrines, and what they'll do is they'll take the baptism of the Spirit and use that often as a metaphor for something that they already claim to be true as part of their church tradition, rather than letting the baptism of the Spirit speak on its own terms. And that'll be significant here in a little bit. So let me start by by highlighting how overlooked the concept is, which I think in and of itself is, a, is stunning to me. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is all the different Reformed traditions tend to point back to that, does not mention the baptism of the Spirit. And not only that, you won't find John the Baptist's prophecy referenced once in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, you know, if you actually go through that, that, that document, it's amazing how much scripture is cited. And as I was going through it, I mean, you know, it's like in Mark, they cite almost every other verse in Mark 1 except for that one. And it, for something that's so significant, the very ministry of Jesus, to not even treat it at all in a primary doctrinal statement alone is telling. The same is true for the Baptist faith and message. It's not even mentioned. The verses are not cited. It's not mentioned. Uh, and it doesn't mean there's not. There are great Reformed and Baptist scholars who definitely do treat the concept of the baptism of the Spirit, but it's very clearly a secondary issue, not primary, and not even worth mentioning in the major doctrinal statements of these groups. The Catholic Catechism, which is their central doctrinal statements, does treat the baptism of the Spirit. So if you, if you dive into that, you'll find specifically they'll look at it in John's Gospel, not the synoptics, but they'll look at it in John's Gospel. 
when you get into it further, what you'll discover is that it's more or less synonymous with baptism and the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of communion is how that gets developed. But at least, you know, props to them for at least diving into it. And, you know, then obviously in the Pentecostal world, it's the exact opposite where it's a major doctrine that is a central part of it. But even though that's my own background and my own tradition, I think I can critique and and say that some of the themes that are developed in the Catholic side of it, as far as how does the baptism of the Spirit fit water baptism, or um, as we'll see in a minute, some of the um, standard evangelical or reform side of how is the baptism of the Spirit linked to salvation and Christian identity is in most Pentecostal circles also pretty underdeveloped. And so I don't know that you can point to any one group and say they've got it figured out. I think there's stuff to learn from each one. But to me, it feels like something that needs a lot more development to look at it. So let me give two, two major categories of how this gets discussed that maybe help separate the concept. The first is where the baptism of the Spirit is linked to salvation. And this, I would call this the standard view. And so even though these, the groups I'm about to list are all very different from each other, all of them would treat the baptism of the Spirit as intricately tied to the salvation process. So Catholic, Reformed, Orthodox, and Baptist, and I would lump Baptist, probably most standard evangelical, they're all going to be in the same camp. And so even though they, they differ in their soteriology of what salvation looks like, they would all agree that the baptism of the Spirit is linked to their soteriology. An example of this would be um, even if you have charismatic Baptist or charismatic Reformed, what they would tend to do is say that the baptism of the Spirit is our salvation, where we are sealed in the Spirit in Ephesians 1. And that occurs when we receive Christ. And so our soteriology is that we're saved by grace through faith. And then at that moment of faith, we are baptized and made new in the Holy Spirit. And then eventually water baptism is an act of obedience that symbolizes that. But in the baptism of the Spirit, it occurs at salvation. Then what they would say, and you see this in the book of Acts, that they might be progressively filled with the Holy Spirit later in life. So there are instances later in life that even though I've already been baptized at my salvation, I'm being filled. I'm experiencing the power of the Spirit. And that could be tongues. That could be any number of other things. But technically speaking, that wouldn't necessarily be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Catholics take the same idea, and they link it, like I said earlier, to water baptism and confirmation. And so charismatic Catholics might develop this idea and say that the baptism of the Spirit is you know when I was water baptized and confirmed. However, that is being actualized later in life. Catholics will often talk about a seed of faith. So picture like a seed that's planted in the ground. Well, an oak seed is very different than an oak tree. So there's going to be a lot of development that occurs later in life where what happened when I was baptized is being realized. And so again, charismatic manifestations of my walk with the Spirit could happen progressively throughout my life, but the baptism occurred synonymously and simultaneously with water baptism and confirmation. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is the Pentecostal, and I'm going to throw in the Wesleyan or the holiness view, and that is that the baptism of the Spirit is subsequent. And so salvation occurs as a separate event from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I am saved. Generally in these traditions, I am saved by grace through faith, so similar to the standard Protestant view. And and that is a salvation experience. And maybe I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is put inside of me. But the baptism of the Spirit is when the power of the Spirit comes upon me. And in the Wesleyan viewpoint, that is sanctification. So that's empowerment for Christ-like living. 
And then in the Pentecostal charismatic, that's going to be miracles, signs, wonders. Classical Pentecostals would say that's evidenced by speaking in tongues. A lot of others in the broader Pentecostal renewalist umbrella would not limit it just to tongues, but they would point towards different manifestations of the Holy Spirit upon the life of the believer. And then similarly, there could be subsequent fillings that take place, but they would look for a physical event to occur after someone is saved, and that's what they would refer to as the baptism of the Spirit. So just to recap, what I think I hear you saying, Drew, is that just about every mainline or, or kind of orthodox Christian thread or, or denomination would believe that at salvation we are sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Ephesians 1, maybe even thinking back to John 20 when Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But then the subsequent ministry of the Spirit, now that begins to differ depending upon the various traditions. Maybe we see that as the filling of the Spirit, and and don't get lost in the semantics and the language, but the filling of the Spirit in John 20, and then those same disciples being baptized in the Spirit at the day of Pentecost, and and then the ministry of the Spirit for either signs and wonders or sanctification. That's where we begin to see these kind of diverging branches. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and, and, you know, pastorally here, I think you could stop here. If you're somebody who this kind of stuff is confusing and not always helpful, you really could stop here and acknowledge that everybody is saying that there is a salvation experience that occurs purely by the grace of God through the cross of Christ, where we are then water baptized into the church and our, the, the deposit of the Spirit is put within us, making us new and reestablishing us to the life of God from the inside out. And then there's the opportunity then to walk in the greater gifts of the Spirit progressively throughout life. So that right there, We'll talk about cessationism at a future episode, people who believe that the power gifts of the Spirit ceased with the New Testament, and I clearly strongly dispute that, um, but that's a minority view in the church. But the previous paragraph I just mentioned, that's a viewpoint that I think just about any branch of the church either teaches or at least would be okay with, and you could really leave it there and and not get hung up on all the semantics. Um, Sometimes, however, even though it is a semantic issue, it does reveal I think some cool insights that we can develop for our faith. And so if you're the type of person who, whenever you hear a phrase like that, you're like, what does scripture really say about it? What does it mean? I I like going down those bunny holes sometimes, especially on something that's really significant, because what you start to discover are some truths that wrestling with the semantic issues actually come to the surface in a way that I think are, are cool and helpful in faith. And so you could stop, you could really stop right here and just say, we, we have the Spirit within us because we're saved and there's more of the Spirit that we can have because the Spirit is active and moving. And I, I can leave it there pastorally, but from a theological perspective, if we go deeper, we can also mine out some additional truths. So let, let's do that. Let's look at Scripture here. And I think part of the challenge in how baptism of the Spirit is understood is that Paul, Luke, John and maybe even Peter in their New Testament writings highlight different aspects of the Spirit work. So Paul does not mention Spirit baptism, which is kind of crazy. You know, you you think of something that's such a significant symbol and concept in the Gospels to have Paul not even mention it. And there is um, one instance in 1 Corinthians 12 that's debatable that could be a reference to Spirit baptism, where Paul says, you are baptized into one Spirit I don't know if it's quite a reference to John's prophecy or if it's a separate point he's making. But either way, it's not a major emphasis. So he talks about the Spirit all the time. And Gordon Fee is the great guy to study. Um, he has a thousand-page book on um, the Spirit in Paul. But he also has some shorter works as well that you could reference. So Paul talks about the work of the Spirit a ton, 
but he doesn't necessarily link that back to the concept of the baptism of the Spirit. So if you contrast Paul with Luke, and they're the two primary authors of the New Testament, you know, if you look at the total New Testament corpus, you know, those two are responsible for, for most of it. And he focuses significantly on the baptism of the Spirit, and even going so far as linking it to Pentecost. And so if you were to actually just take the biblical witness, you know, Jesus has risen from the dead, the disciples have seen him, they have placed their faith in Jesus, and they're told to wait for the baptism of the Spirit. And so that's, you know, if you're going to make an argument for the Pentecostal view, you could probably start there. And they're actually waiting for the baptism of the Spirit after the resurrection, after they've put their faith in Christ. And then it's at Pentecost, and if you read Acts 1, John's prophecy is mentioned, and they're said to wait a little bit longer. And then Pentecost is the fulfillment of that prophecy, where it's very much the empowerment. And so what a lot of Pentecostal scholars have noted is that Luke tends to focus on empowerment uh, when he talks about the baptism of the Spirit. And, you know, when you read Acts and you, um, where a lot of this is developed uh, more fully, it's interesting to see, you know, I already mentioned Acts 1 and 2 with the initial disciples, but then you see in, in Acts 8 with Samaritans who were baptized and had believed in the name of Jesus, but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So hands are laid on them and they receive the Spirit. You have this curious story with Ephesus where uh, a similar, where people had received John's baptism. And so there's, you know, debate there of had they actually believed in Jesus yet? Could you really consider Ephesus them to be Christians? But in, in several of these different stories in Acts, there seems to be some type of distance and space between the salvation experience and the baptism of the Spirit. Um, however, uh, you know, if you were to kind of play the other side of it, you have the story of Cornelius where you have Gentiles who have not been water baptized and as best we know were not saved yet who get filled with the Holy Spirit and start speaking in tongues before Peter even pre finishes preaching the gospel. So I think it's hard to make a strong case one way or another for saying that the baptism of the Spirit is always conversion or that it's always a subsequent event just based on Acts. But there's at least enough in the book of Acts to make it confusing. You know, so you see these different themes. So Paul is going to focus a lot more on our identity in God, um, our identity in Christ, and the, the Holy Spirit empowering us into our, the fullness of our identity. Luke tends to focus more on the baptism of the Spirit, equipping us for ministry and equipping us to be a part of God's purposes. I know that's a lot. I know that could be a little bit confusing between, you know, kind of looking at these different authors, and I'm not even getting into John or Peter. You know, I think I'd start, whenever I look at something like this in Scripture, start with the acknowledgement that just because they highlight different aspects does not mean that they're contradictory. I don't think Luke nor Paul contradict each other in their work of the Spirit at all. I think what they're doing is they're focusing on different aspects of the Spirit's work. And what that means then is I think we have to be careful to make a total theology just based on one. I think we have to read the whole New Testament and have a broader view of the Spirit's work than just locking in on one example from Paul or from Luke. So let me highlight three things that even though Paul, Luke, John focus on different aspects of the Spirit's work, three consistent threads that I see. And this doesn't necessarily answer the baptism of the Spirit question, but I think does help us develop a more rich theology of the Spirit. First, the baptism of the Spirit seems to be a fluid metaphor in Scripture. Frank Macchia, who I've referenced before, he draws this out. Gordon Fee references this. So, but it's a fluid metaphor, and it's not that Luke, Paul, and John are contradictory, but they're also not precise in the way that they use that term, how we might want them to be. So we kind of want to lock in on this term and say, this is exactly what it means. I don't know that you can go to Scripture and fully pull that out, because that's not how the New Testament authors 
um, take the term. Second, I think it's hard to avoid the reality that the baptism of the Spirit involves salvation, church unity, empowerment for righteousness, and empowerment for witness. And so when we look at the ongoing work of the Spirit, those things are involved in some way. You can maybe make arguments about how exactly they fit and the order in which they come, but I, I think we are at risk if we lock in on just one of those and try to relegate the work of the Spirit to just one or two of those. We have to look at the totality of how the Spirit works in Scripture. I've actually done a study where I'm trying to look at every single time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the New Testament, going back into original language, looking at the context of it, and asking the question, what does the Spirit do? And there is a lot that the Spirit does, and it's a lot. his work is a lot more broad than often we like to think about it. Lastly, this and this one I think is really important um, for our understanding, the baptism or the work of the Spirit is tangible, visible, and observable to others. And this is a thread that I see consistently in Paul and also in Luke-Acts. Paul's argument, as I've discussed before in Romans, the ability for a united Jew and Gentile church is the fact that the Spirit is working in the hearts of both Jew and Gentile in such a tangible way that they're actually able to transcend ethnic barriers and have unity. So if we reduce the baptism of the Spirit purely to a metaphor or a concept, it misses the thrust and the power of what's actually occurring in the Roman church. Likewise, in Acts, the whole reason why Gentiles are included in Cornelius is because Peter and the other disciples witnessed the power of the Spirit upon this Gentile household in a way that they could discern. And that actually ended up being the decisive logic, both when Peter reported back to the church in Acts 11, why he was breaking all kinds of Jewish social codes and eating and having fellowship and going into the home of a Gentile and a Roman soldier, no less. He basically said to them, but how, how am I to not do this if the Holy Spirit is leading and if the Holy Spirit is, is moving? And he referenced John the Baptist's prophecy at that point. And it's the same logic that we see in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council is the work of the Spirit, the tangible work of the Spirit is enough to sway the argument in the direction of the church. So regardless of how you want to formulate the baptism of the Spirit, theologically, what I would challenge as a significant factor is that it has to be something that's tangible, real, and not just something that lives in our thoughts. That's great. So when we talk about interpreting the baptism of the Spirit or understanding it, what I hear you saying is that we need to recognize, first and foremost, that the Spirit is clearly acting in a decisive way in the world, that He is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's saving, he's uniting us to the church, transforming us into the image of Jesus, empowering us, speaking to us. Like these are all activities that should be, that are that are demonstrative in, in a sense. They're external. They should be able to be witnessed by those around us. Yeah, exactly. So let me give you two definitions that hopefully highlight this. The first is going to be the fancy theological definition. And it says this, through spirit baptism, believers participate in the ongoing legacy of Pentecost while they anticipate and to some extent realize eschatological hope within the life of the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the church's ongoing existence is predicated upon the ongoing work of the Spirit. Baptism and conversion can be seen as the entrance into this inheritance and is progressively realized, including through empowerment for witness in Christ-like living. So if you could follow that long sentence or that long couple sentences, what we're talking about here is a massive, broad overview of all of God's work where really we're looking at the baptism of the Spirit as the future. And I'm basing a lot of this off of um, Frank Machia, Wolfgang Vondi, Jean Zizlios, 
and uh, Jürgen Moltmann and a few others who, you know, we're, we're kind of taking this very cosmic view of God's purposes where one day all of those who are in Christ are reunited fully back into the life of the Godhead and a new creation. And there is no more distance between us and God, between us and one another, between us and creation. All of it is restored. And that's really what the baptism of the rep- of Spirit represents is that future. And then what's happening now is that we are living in that future. And that's this tension of the now and not yet of the kingdom. So it's a reality now, but it's not yet made full. And that's Pentecost. So Pentecost was the birth of that. Eschatology is the future of that. And we're living in the middle of that. And that's what the baptism of the Spirit represents, kind of in this very broad, expansive view. And that's a really key point. I want to emphasize that. Again, we talk about meta narrative on this podcast a lot. You go back to our first couple episodes and... This is a, a key theme. You just, if you track with us with any frequency, you'll pick up on this. And most of our episodes we talk about all the way back in the beginning, you had this unity of God with his people. And even before that, we, we are Trinitarian in our theology, and we can't divorce the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, a member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He's talked about as the Spirit of Jesus. Sometimes we can kind of relegate the Holy Spirit to the sidelines as being some kind of subclass in the Trinity, but fully, co-equally God among the members of the Trinity. And out of that fellowship, out of that Trinitarian existence creates mankind to fellowship with God, with one another. And then the the brokenness, the shattering of that unity that Drew's talking about is is then repaired throughout the rest of the scriptures. You kind of have this redemptive history nestled between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And I love you. You've said this before, Drew, that that imagery of the, the Tower of Babel representing the fracturing, the further fracturing of humanity, and then the day of Pentecost representing the, the coming together made possible by the power of the Spirit, all these languages that, that divided humanity in the Old Testament. Now these various languages are uniting humanity again in the person of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Such a key point, just want to underscore. Yeah, I live today, I live in Pentecost and in the reality of eschatological hope, and that's my home. And then we're pilgrims in this world where we're realizing that hope, but it's not yet in fullness. And that is so helpful and it's such a broad view and you know another way of saying this you brought up trinitarian theology is that by the will of the father he sent christ into the world and jesus decisively acted so through his death burial resurrection his life his incarnation so that we can be rejoined into the life of god and that this is being realized through the ongoing work of the holy spirit until Christ returns. And so you see this interplay in the work of the Trinity. And, you know, it's all, so you just take every major theological theme, I think, lumps in into this. And I think that's part of why it's hard to nail down the exact definition of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because it is so expansive. And I think one of our dangers has been we have um, tried to, we've tried to lock it in a little too tightly, in my opinion, rather than appreciating the broadness of what God is doing and that we get to participate in. So that's the really high-level theological view. But if we stop there, I would be concerned that we would have an incomplete definition of the baptism of the Spirit. And my concern would be that we could, you know, sometimes in theology we can have these very heady definitions that live in the clouds that we can all feel good about, but what does that actually affect in my life? And if it doesn't affect anything, or if I'm not able to draw the connection on how it affects something, I think we should question our theology. And I would argue the the second definition I'm about to give you is actually more important. This is the ground level definition. That spirit baptism represents a real experience in the life of the church 
and the lives of individual believers. That word real is the key word in that sentence. It's real. It happens. You know, the Spirit is actually working. He's not just a concept. He's not just an idea. And this is where I think the Pentecostals get it right. So even though I don't know, you know, the some of the very narrow definitions of spirit baptisms you see in the Pentecostal church, especially where they might say it has to be evidenced by speaking in tongues, I'm not going to go there. But what I can appreciate, and I think what the Pentecostal church is trying to do is give language to this reality that the Spirit's work is real. Think about it. How did the Spirit baptism doctrines develop in the Pentecostal church? Well, they encountered the Spirit in a real way. Then they encountered the Spirit, and they started reading the book of Acts, and they said, oh, what we just had happen in our life is mirrored on the pages of, of Scripture. So it's actually a very different way of even doing theology. They didn't start with formulas. They didn't start with their brains. They started with the encounter of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not arguing for a unintellectual faith, and, I, and that is a, probably a legitimate criticism of Pentecostalism at times. But I'm also, I'm also saying that a purely intellectual faith is a dangerous thing. That if we actually, what we claim to believe to be true, then we should expect the Spirit to be working and breaking into the world. In fact, our theology depends upon that reality. And so it makes sense at that point for us to say that there are limits on what we can think and we are necessarily dependent upon the Spirit's ongoing, active, tangible work in the life of the church. And so when a Pentecostal, including myself and others in our faith tradition, use the phrase to describe that, I think it's accurate. I think it's an accurate way of describing the Spirit's work, breaking into the world in a way that's real and makes sense. A random literary aside, I just read Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Bared Away, and she, uh, it, it's a very macabre work, but it portrays, when you divorce the spirit from the intellect, it, it portrays very graphically what happens in the, in the life of a person. And, and I love that emphasis, Drew, that this is something that is tangible, that is lived, that it can't just be an intellectual thought or theory, that the baptism of the, of the spirit is a lived, ongoing uh, reality uh, in the life of the believer. And I think, you know, we any of our faith traditions, on the one hand, as we try to make sense of salvation, it probably is helpful to say some kind of sequence, you know, that there's a profession of faith, at which point I experience new life, I'm water baptized, I get prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it's this very sequential ordering, and I think that's helpful from a teaching standpoint to say this is normally how we see this happening. But the Spirit also works in ways that are surprising to us, you know, and if you look at people's testimonies, what do you do with the person who isn't saved yet but starts speaking in tongues and comes under the power of the Holy Spirit? You know, or what do you do? You just see these different stories, and, and I think what that speaks to is divine freedom. The Holy Spirit is active, is moving, and uh, of course, we always have to call into question our, our ability to interpret how the Spirit's moving, and that's why you can never divorce the ongoing revelation of the Spirit from the revelation of the Spirit in Scripture. And, and that's, I think, a very important guardrail for us to have, and I'd add in um, the legacy of the Spirit working in the history of the church. But that fear should not keep us from being attuned to, aware of, and expecting the Spirit's active work. And I think some people are just afraid. They're like, you know, if we accept that, that view that the Spirit actively works, how do we not become relativists where each person determines their own truth? And of course, you know, there's that's a legit concern, and I think we've addressed that multiple times. But we've got to be careful of the opposite error there, that in an effort to safeguard the faith, we kill it. And we, we actually cut ourselves off from an awareness of the Spirit's work. The Spirit's going to work whether we're aware of it or not, but it's a poverty of the Christian faith to no longer be aware or sensitive to how the Spirit's moving. That reminds me of Paul and in, in his letter to the Corinthians, first letter, 
that uh, they are abusing the spiritual gifts. And that's very clear throughout the letter. And yet he doesn't shut it down. He doesn't say, now move away from this. He, he gives correction, but then encourages them, exhorts them now eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you would prophesy. And I think that's a, I think it's a relevant message to the church today. I think there have been a lot of abuses. And I think that's what turns people off of the baptism of the spirit in, in more of the Pentecostal sense of the demonstrative uh, manifestations of the spirit that are listed in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. And yet the admonition in scripture is uh, in spite of the abuses. Then he inserts the chapter on love, which is commonly quoted at weddings, but it's actually in the context of small group worship that uh, out of love, we eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, not sideline them. Yeah, and you go through and you think of, you know, this concept of the spirit's ongoing work. It's such a big deal. I mean, Romans falls apart without this. Galatians at one level falls apart without this. Think about Jesus's own words as recorded in John 16 where he says, it's actually better that I go away. So it's better that the incarnate Christ leaves because if he goes, he's going to send the helper to us, speaking of the paraclete, speaking of the Holy Spirit. I mean, those are huge words. And Luke acts, like I've already mentioned, this was the reason Gentiles were included into the church was the work of the Spirit. You know, so you're talking about a really major theme in the New Testament where a lot of decisions are based upon it, Jesus speaks to it. it. Just all of it is the work of the Spirit is not a minor thing. And I, I think confusion, I think fear has kept a lot of the church from fully embracing the significance of the Spirit's work. And I want to be fair. I don't know of anybody who is saying the Spirit does not work anymore. But I do think there is a lot of fear or unwillingness to ask the question how the Spirit works that has hindered a lot of theological development in a way that I think ultimately uh, is important for us to reclaim. So to summarize, baptism of the Holy Spirit is a very important biblical concept. It's a concept that's confusing because different church traditions don't quite know where it fits. And we said that we think maybe a good solution for that is to see it really as referring to God's cosmic purposes that we participate in now. But then lastly, and most importantly, and this is why, you know, all the semantics of this to me make a lot of sense, is it gets us to the point to say that the baptism of the Spirit has to be a lived reality that tangibly impacts my life and the life of the church today, if we're going to understand it in a truly biblical way. And so even if you want to formulate that according to one of the other church traditions, the Reformed or the Catholic, I think you can't avoid the reality that the baptism of the Spirit has to be real even if you say that it started at salvation. I'm great with that, but it can't just be a concept or a metaphor. Uh, we'll pick back up and we'll do a second episode here in a bit on the, the work of the Spirit where we tackle a few questions, including concerns people have that spiritual gifts are no longer operative, um, and that's what's known as cessationism and some of the controversy that happens in light of the development of the spiritual gifts. But today I wanted to start and wanted us to dive into just a very much more broad overview of why is this such a big deal? Why do we talk about it a lot? And what actually is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And then if we can get that clear theologically as, as much as you can in a short podcast, then we'll take that and say, okay, well, let's let's talk through how does this work itself out in the life of the church. It's great. Appreciate that, Drew. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week on Ideology.